If ever there was a book of the Bible that shaped every other book in the Bible, this might be it. And so in Exodus 1, we commence on a journey that will bring us through three monumental events. The redemption from Egypt, the giving of the law, and the establishment of Israel as a nation. For the Lord is our defense, yes, you defend us. For the Lord is our defense, yes, you defend us. It may be helpful to plainly state in a day of liberal scholarship that Moses is the writer of Exodus. And the book begins by picking up on the plan God revealed to Abraham in Genesis 15, specifically that his posterity would spend 400 years in a strange land. And so years pass and Moses picks up the record of what occurred just prior to his own generation. In the opening seven verses, we're given a list of the tribes. This does not include Ephraim and Manasseh because they were already in Egypt. And the sons are listed not by chronological birth, but according to their mothers. So they're grouped as Leah, Rachel, Bilhah and Zilpah. Verse 7 shows us how the covenant community multiplies and terms are, are layered one on top of the other to communicate what has happened. This growth fulfilled God's command to man in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 9 and also God's repeated promises to Abraham. In verses 8 through 14, since Joseph met his great-grandchildren, another 70 years after his death, there would have been those who still were in possession of a personal memory of Joseph. However, a new pharaoh arises with no knowledge or regard for Joseph. Now, some believe there was at this time a new Egyptian dynasty. But regardless, either there is a loss of the memory of Joseph's significance, or it may be combined with a purposeful disregard for what he accomplished. The new pharaoh initiates then a campaign of propaganda, suggesting that their peaceful neighbours represented a threat to Egyptian existence. And so, like many lies, its power is in the fact that it contained in it a seed of truth, or we might say probability. And this lie provides a platform to launch an assault on the Hebrews, as such taskmasters are appointed. And we're not told precisely how the Hebrews became enslaved, like, was it, was it by force? Was it by developing new laws with slavery as punishment? Was it through an agreement for the, the right to have their livestock on the land? Whatever the case, they end up being utilized to build treasure cities, which the kings of Egypt used as storehouses of, of some description. But after years of oppression, the Hebrews still multiplied. And this leads to an increase of hard labor. In verses 15 through 22, when Pharaoh's best effort to oppress the children of Israel fails, he adds a third strategy. Have the midwives kill every newborn male. Now, only two midwives are mentioned, either because he wanted to focus on a subset of the midwives, or because these women had oversight over all the midwives at that time. And of course, if this plan succeeds, then the Hebrews perish or the women, at least, are incorporated into Egyptian culture. But the request is met with civil disobedience, and when Pharaoh eventually realizes that his request is basically being ignored, the midwives say that the Hebrew women deliver too quickly. 
Now, <laughs> at the very least, this was a partial falsehood. And yet, despite this, God favors the midwives and the Hebrews continue to multiply. Now, in your reading, you may have noted the language, quote, he made them houses. And I don't know if you've looked into it, but this is hotly debated. There are various views, the two primary being either God prospering the households of the infants the midwives save, or as is more likely, I think, the families of the midwives actually being prospered and their house being built up. Pharaoh then moves to his fourth strategy. Everyone is obligated to drown infant Hebrew males in the river. Now, had he never said this, Moses would never have ended up in the royal household and never been prepared to deliver the children of Israel. And so we come to application. One, knowledge of a person is an agent in kindness to them. Pharaoh's wickedness arises out of a lack of personal knowledge of Joseph. And this underlines the weakness of men to love that which is not known. Now, this comes with particular sharpness to me because I remember having what I may term unhealthy thoughts about someone, someone I had never met. And one day it dawned on me that if, if, I, if I met them, it might help keep me from these, these sinful thoughts. And so I sought them out. Long story short, we met up, we had lunch, and I began to think better of them. And so let me say this, only God knows how much healing occurs in the body of Christ over a good meal and meaningful conversation. And so I say to you, make use of hospitality to restore strained relationships and to keep sin at bay. Two, affliction is a divine tool to maintain purity. We learn from Ezekiel 20 that at least some of the Hebrews were given to the idolatry of the Egyptians. So when they become classed as slaves, it actually functions to keep them from assimilating further into Egyptian culture. The Egyptians would, would be very unlikely to marry them as slaves. And so in thinking about that, I, I considered the fact that it was not just the, the favor from Pharaoh which saved God's people in Joseph's day, but even the affliction that followed. And God still does this using persecution to maintain purity in his church and affliction as an instrument for sanctification in his people. In Psalm 119 verse 71 we read, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. And so if you're suffering today, try to thank God for it. It's not easy, but try, because it ought to turn you from sin or keep you away from sin. And those, both of those, are priceless. Three, so-called serviceable lies are sin. Now, Many suggest that God approved of the deceit of the midwives here. From, from here and the other scriptures, they argue that we do not owe the truth to those we know will abuse it. And to be honest, I, I sympathize with that view and I've actually argued for it in the past. I mean, what do we say to the Nazis asking us, do we know the whereabouts of the Jews? Do we tell them we don't know? Are we lying? Or, or if we do know, do we tell them knowing that they're going to use that information to kill people? And yet it's hard to argue with Calvin when he says, quote, whatever is opposed to the nature of God is sinful. I mean, Scripture is clear. God cannot lie. And if God cannot lie, we should not either. You see, faith speaks the truth come what may. And even the larger catechism says, quote, speaking the truth and only the truth in matters of judgment and justice and in all other things whatsoever, end quote. So when we read of the Hebrew midwives being blessed or favored, it's not because they lied. It's because they feared God. 
Let the Muslim justify lying, and they do, but let it not be the position of the people of God. 4. God's kingdom advances when ordinary people obey the Lord. It was not through a mighty prophet that God would serve the church at this time, but through two midwives. I I love this. A midwife might not imagine her work integral to God's kingdom, but evidently it is. And this is a vital truth for children and young people to grasp as early as possible. There is no place where the consecrated life cannot be used by God. Rejoice wherever you are. And finally, persecution is cruel, but often counterproductive. The rise of a pharaoh who turns against the children of Israel is not to be understood as simply an unfortunate event or a mere racial opposition. These attacks, which occur repeatedly in Israel's history, are driven by Satan's desire to prevent the coming of the Messiah. Underline it. Remember that. And that is why the success Pharaoh enjoys must be short-term. It's easy for us to read over verse 11 and 12 and not consider the dramatic social change this brought into the lives of the covenant people. And yet, despite Pharaoh's best effort, the Hebrews flourished. And so it is with the church in every age, whether it be in Diocletian's persecution Christ's body cannot be extinguished. She will survive and often thrive in the worst social and political circumstances. And so the next time you think a new law or a new government is going to hinder the church, read Exodus 1 verse 12 and rest in the one who has power in heaven and on earth. May the Lord help us see the victory held in Christ's hands alone. 